Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. New developments in the saga of classified documents held by President Biden. A special counsel has been appointed to investigate. We bring you how lawmakers are responding and how the level of classification plays a role. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed him to investigate President Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. But what do we know about special counsel Robert K. Hurd? More Twitter files are being released. The latest installment alleges some lawmakers made up part of the so-called Russiagate allegations. Tornadoes in Alabama and other southern states leave a trail of destruction. Some terrifying footage of the storms that left at least seven people dead. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to investigate classified documents found at President Biden's home and his former office. This has drawn mixed reactions from GOP lawmakers. House Speaker McCarthy said Congress should lead the investigation. The House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner said intel agencies should conduct a damage assessment and the potential fallout from mishandling classified documents. Biden's special counsel said the documents probably ended up there by mistake. We hear some analysis on the potential outcomes of the investigation and what the classifications of the documents mean. Joining us now for some discussion is attorney and former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York, Mark Ruskin. Mark's also a retired FBI special agent. It's a pleasure having you with us today, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here, Kevin. Hello. The attorney general is to appoint a special counsel when he determines that a criminal investigation is warranted and a DOJ prosecution would present a conflict of interest. So what can we expect to happen here in terms of what the special counsel can do and who handles the prosecution if there is foul play? Well, the fact that the special counsel has been appointed is in and of itself very interesting because there must have been some significant aggravating circumstances here in order for Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to have decided to right away go ahead with a special counsel. And uh, you know, who would prosecute it would really, de- de- there are a lot of uh, variables there. It, you know, there, If there is evidence of uh, foul play, it would be presented to a grand jury. The grand jury would then vote on whether or not to pr- do an indictment and on what charges. And I can you know, talk further along those lines. Uh, if you uh, would like to me to follow up on that. Yes, please explain just the, the whole outcome here. What, what's possible? Well, what's possible really depends on the se- severity of what's happened. And it appears to be severe. There are different types of classifications. It's, uh, the public is generally just familiar with secret or top secret. But there's classified, there's secret, there's top secret. And then the higher level is what's called SCI, which is sensitive compartmentalized information. And that is the highest level. And it appears in this case that there was SCI uh, documents which have been recovered. And there's a whole body of laws and regulations which define how SCI information is to be handled. For example, and this is very critical here, it has to be maintained in what's called a SCIF. A SCIF is a sensitive compartmentalized information facility, and the SCIF has to have a, a bunch of rules that define how it works. There has to be a log of who comes in and who goes out when. There have to be locks, combination locks, with the combination changed regularly and maintained. 
the no windows. And if it's not maintained in the skiff, then that in and of itself creates a whole panoply of uh, violations. Well, thanks for touching on the classifications here. Former President Trump, whose home was raided for a similar reason, has called for the FBI to raid Biden's home after the classified documents were found. And according to factcheck.org, which you touched on here, the differences are such that the documents found in Trump's possession were labeled top secret, whereas those in Biden's possession were reportedly sensitive, compartmented information. Is there a major difference here, and what can the special counsel do? Well, one difference has to do with an end result is that, and there's another uh, possibility is that some of these documents may have been classified not only as CI, but no foreign. No foreign means it cannot be disseminated to a foreign entity. Now, if it's found that these documents were disseminated, that there was access by a foreign entity, and that they were is detrimental to the interests of the United States, then it could be really severe. So you could have individuals who have committed treason by disseminating this information. And the, what, what the uh, U.S. attorney can do depends on his motivations. Is he there to really uncover what happened, or is he there to cover up what happened? That would be uh, critical here. Very important questions. We'll keep a close eye on this. Former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York, Mark Ruskin, pleasure having you on the show today. It's been a pleasure to be here, Kevin. Thank you. Who is Robert K. Hur? We take a look at the special counsel appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland. He is charged with leading the probe into President Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. And today's Daniel Monahan acquaints us with the former federal prosecutor. Good afternoon. My name is Robert Hur. Robert Hur was the U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland from April 2018 until February 2021. We expose and prosecute public corruption. He was appointed to that role by former President Donald Trump, creating the office's first national security and cybercrime section. Her and his office brought and resolved fraud and corruption charges against dozens of officials and public employees. State, local, uh, public officials that unfortunately are corrupted and they don't uh, fulfill their duties of fulfilling honest services to their, to their uh, constituents. Under Hur's leadership, the office successfully prosecuted Harold Martin, a former NSA contractor. Martin allegedly stole and retained classified material for over two decades and stored it in his home and car. Hur's appointment as special counsel follows a tumultuous week for the Biden administration. Additional documents bearing classification markings were identified in the garage of the president's private residence. A journalist asked Biden what the thought process behind storing classified documents next to his Corvette was. And by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. On his new assignment, Hur says, quote, I will conduct the assigned investigation with fair, impartial, and dispassionate judgment. Hur graduated from Harvard University and Stanford Law School. He was a former law clerk for Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist. He joined the Department of Justice's Criminal Division in 2003. There, he served as counsel and special assistant to then-Assistant Attorney General Christopher Wray, now the FBI director. Between 2003 and 2018, Hur went back and forth between the Justice Department and private law practice at King and & Spalding and was Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General from 2017 to 2018. In the latter role, Hur served as the principal counselor to then-Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Rosenstein is noteworthy for his involvement in the Trump-Russia collusion investigation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
Democrats allegedly pushed a false Russiagate narrative, even though they were told it wasn't true. That's according to the latest installment of the so-called Twitter files. Journalist Matt Taibbi released more Twitter files on Thursday. He alleges that prominent Democrats knowingly pushed a false Russiagate-related narrative about Russian bots during the Trump-Russia investigation. That's despite their being told by Twitter executives that it wasn't true. Taibbi tweeted, quote, At a crucial moment in a years-long furor, Democrats denounced a report about flaws in the Trump-Russia investigation, saying it was boosted by Russian bots and trolls. And emails appear to show that. Twitter officials were aghast, finding no evidence of Russian influence. Democrats' Russia allegations allegedly started after some Republicans demanded they release a memo, starting a hashtag which was called Release the Memo. It was later released and showed how the FBI under the Obama administration used unverified opposition research to obtain a warrant to spy on one of Trump's campaign volunteers. It was part of an investigation into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Days after the hashtag was started, some Democrats demanded social media companies investigate allegations of Russian bots and trolls surrounding the Release the Memo online campaign. Various legacy media outlets did the same, claiming Russian bots and trolls were behind the effort. Taibbi says NBC, Politico, AP, Times, Business Insider, and other media outlets who played up the Russian bot story, even Rolling Stone, all declined to comment for this story. Also, Yoel Roth, who was Twitter's trust and safety chief at the time, reportedly told colleagues, I just reviewed the accounts that posted the first 50 tweets with hashtag release the memo, and none of them showed any signs of affiliation to Russia. Taibbi concluded, alleging, quote, The Russiagate scandal was built on the craven dishonesty of politicians and reporters who for years ignored the absence of data to fictional scare headlines. The Justice Department has announced that the wife of an Iowa County supervisor was arrested and charged with more than 50 counts of voter fraud. Kim Fung Taylor appeared in court on Thursday. She was charged with 26 counts of providing false information in registering and voting, three counts of fraudulent registration, and 23 counts of fraudulent voting. If found guilty, she faces a maximum penalty of five years in prison for each count. She is the wife of Woodbury County Supervisor Jeremy Taylor. Prosecutors allege Fung Taylor perpetrated a scheme to generate votes in the primary election in June 2020 and then again in the 2020 general election. Her husband was a candidate in both elections. Local reports say Jeremy Taylor resigned as a supervisor after the county auditor ruled he did not live at the address listed on his voter registration. He later won back the seat. A huge storm system tore across the southern U.S. yesterday. At least one person was killed in Georgia, and six are confirmed dead in Alabama. Tornadoes ripped through parts of the state. It's estimated around 50 homes were damaged or destroyed. Damage assessments are still coming in. Tens of thousands of people lost power because of the severe winds. Some dramatic footage was sent in of both the tornado and the destruction it left behind. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg reports. The National Weather Service confirmed a large and extremely dangerous tornado tore through Selma, Alabama and surrounding areas Thursday afternoon. It left behind a trail of destruction. Homes and businesses torn apart. Governor Kay Ivey says at least two dozen tornadoes spawned across the state. Oh my gosh, Ferocious winds ripped off roofs, damaged power lines, severed tree limbs, and littered the streets with debris. Somebody crying. Yeah, I heard a baby crying too. 
A state of emergency was declared for six of the hardest hit counties. And I just want to remind folks that Selma is just one of the communities that was hit by this storm. There have been outlying communities and communities all across the state and probably the southeast that has been hit today. I just want to let everybody know that we care about each and every community. Georgia, Kentucky, and Mississippi were also affected. The Storm Prediction Center says at least 34 tornado reports were recorded as of Thursday evening. Oh my God, y'all, we blessed. Oh my God. Oh, have mercy. Y'all look. Oh Lord, I ain't never been so scared in my life, but I was praying. Lord, protect us. Protect us in this little area. Close to 140,000 customers in Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and the Carolinas had power knocked out. The storm caused dozens of injuries and at least seven confirmed deaths. One of those in Georgia, where a five-year-old child was killed when a tree fell on top of a car. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In California, Monterey Peninsula residents could soon be living on an island as the level of the Salinas River continues to rise. Drone video shows the Salinas River flooding nearby roads on Thursday. In Monterey County, along the state's central coast, communities near the still-rising Salinas River were under an evacuation order. Sheriff Nieto said they expect flooding to overtake the Salinas River and spread across the peninsula like in 1995. She stressed the peninsula could become an island. At least two more storm systems were set to pound California and the Pacific Northwest starting today. State and local officials are preparing for continued flood stage through Sunday, January 15th. The state has already been hit with seven such weather systems over the past two weeks. So far, 19 people have been killed in the storms. The Federal Aviation Administration is blaming human error for the computer meltdown Wednesday that grounded air traffic nationwide. Officials say a preliminary analysis shows the system failure was caused by those who did not follow procedure while accessing the Notice to Air Missions or NOTAM database. It's the system that gives important pre-flight information to pilots. They say a data file was damaged, which led to a 90-minute ground stop delaying 10,000 flights and triggering operational problems for airline carriers. As of Thursday, the agency said air traffic had returned to normal. A government source told CNN the system is more than 30 years old and a planned update was at least six years away. A group of senators wants answers from Southwest Airlines over last month's travel schedule meltdown. The New York Times reports that 13 senators signed off on a letter to Southwest CEO containing dozens of questions for the airline. The questions reportedly focus on topics like the airline's flight crew scheduling system and its plans for ticket refunds and executive compensation. Southwest has been under pressure since it canceled more than 16,000 flights during the busy holiday travel season, leaving travelers stranded in airports around Christmas. The airline has said it plans to reimburse passengers for expenses accrued due to their cancellations, including ticket costs as well as the costs of hotels and rental cars. And coming up, the shipping container wall in Arizona is gone, but work is now underway to officially fill in the gaps in the border wall. Get the details in just a minute here on NTD News.
Customs and Border Patrol has a big announcement from Yuma, Arizona. Construction work to fill in the border wall gaps is underway. Workers just earlier this month removed double-stacked shipping containers from the open areas. Former Republican Governor Doug Ducey signed an executive order to install the improvised wall in 2022. He said the federal government was taking too long to complete the wall designed to deter illegal immigrants. But the U.S. government sued, saying the makeshift wall was illegally erected on federal lands. This past December, Arizona state and federal authorities agreed to remove the containers and equipment. House Republicans are forming a new subcommittee that will focus on digital currency following the collapse of crypto exchange FTX last year. Congressman Patrick McHenry unveiled the new subcommittee on digital assets, financial technology and inclusion. It aims to create clear guidelines for federal regulators in the digital asset ecosystem. Additionally, the panel plans to create policies to increase access to financial technology in underserved communities and strengthen what it calls diversity and inclusion in digital assets. The holiday season is behind us, and a decidedly less celebrated season is right around the corner, tax season. The IRS has officially set January 23rd as the start of the 2023 tax season, the day the agency will begin accepting and processing 2022 returns. Normally, the filing deadline is April 15th, but this year, that's a Saturday, and the following Monday is off the table as well, since it's Emancipation Day, which is a holiday. It's on Sunday. So this year, the filing deadline is Tuesday, April 18th. The IRS is expecting upwards of 168 million individual tax returns, The tax season was dramatically impacted by the pandemic in recent years. The IRS said it has hired more than 5,000 new employees to take phone calls and added more in-person staff to help support taxpayers. The director of the National Intelligence released a declassified report on UFOs yesterday. It lists 510 reports of unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs. The majority were deemed to be things like drones, balloons, and airborne clutter like birds or trash, but many remain unexplained. The government says while there's no evidence of aliens, the objects are still a cause for concern. Over 170 of the UAPs exhibited what the report called unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities. Many were operating in sensitive military airspace. The Pentagon set up an office to streamline the reporting and analyzing process last year. Here's what the Pentagon press secretary had to say about it yesterday. I think one of the key points in this report, you know, given given the potential uh, hazard that UAPs do present, notably there's been no reported collisions of of uh, military aircraft or U.S. aircraft rather uh, and UAPs. Establishing those reporting procedures what it does, and I think you'll see this in the report, is it allows the collection of data, and more data allows us to be a little bit more rigorous in terms of how we go after investigating these incidents. The classified version of the report includes how many of the objects were found near nuclear power plants or places where nuclear weapons are stored. Pentagon officials say any partial findings are because of a lack of sensor data collection and not evidence of advanced technology or a government cover-up. Move over Mars, NASA is touting a new discovery that is potentially habitable for life. This is an illustration of an exoplanet the space agency is calling TOI-700E. A NASA mission spotted the Earth-sized planet about 100 light-years away. 
They say it is the fourth planet orbiting a small star's habitable zone. That's the zone where a planet is at a safe enough distance from a star that it can potentially have liquid water on its surface. According to scientists, the potential for water also suggests the potential for life on that planet. Researchers say this system is one of the few with multiple small habitable zone planets that they have confirmed exists. Just ahead, a death wave is spreading in China. Videos show crowds and lines at funeral homes in more cities. And China's outbound flight ratios only 15% of pre-pandemic levels. And the FBI is running ads warning people about the Chinese Communist Party. The agency says Chinese Americans may have been victimized. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. The latest on the outbreak in China. Virus deaths are expanding with overcrowded funeral homes spotted in more cities. And today's Don Ma brings us more. China's ongoing wave of virus deaths is reaching new regions, now hitting smaller cities and rural areas. Inside a funeral home in a mid-sized city in central China, one room is full of caskets. And the area outside the funeral home is overcrowded. It's the same situation for funeral homes in a region of southern China's Guangdong province. We spoke to a staff member there. You have to make an appointment three days earlier. There is no way for you to choose a specific time. The whole of Shantou City is like this. The whole of China is like this. There are many corpses. On Wednesday, people were seen lining up outside a funeral home in southern China's Shenzhen City. While in one rural area, relatives held a traditional ceremony to say goodbye to their loved ones. In an area neighboring Beijing called Tianjin City, construction is underway at one funeral home. The facility is adding an expansion to boost its capacity. And on the country's east coast, one city is building a new funeral home. The first week since Beijing opened its borders, flights are falling short. Travel data firm Forward Keys said Thursday that China's outbound flight bookings were at just 15 percent of pre-pandemic levels. China's travel sector faces a number of challenges as it looks to recover. Low airline capacity, high airfares, new pre-flight COVID-19 testing requirements by many countries, and a backlog of passport and visa applications. Forward Key's vice president of Insights explained, although Chinese New Year is likely to see international travel rebound for the first time in three years, we will need to wait longer before we see a resurgence in Chinese tourists exploring the globe. China's handling of COVID-19 has stoked the ire of mainlanders. Some are making a spontaneous decision to draw a line in the sand with the regime. More mainland Chinese citizens are joining Tuidang, a worldwide grassroots movement to quit the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, and its affiliated entities. The movement began in 2004. Since then, more than 400 million Chinese have walked away from the party. One of them, living overseas, announced his decision to quit the Young Pioneers and the Communist Youth League. The Communist Party requires every Chinese student to join these two while in school. 
Explaining why he made the decision, he said for three years, he wasn't able to return home to visit his family, blaming it on COVID-19, which the Chinese regime allowed to spread unchecked around the world. Many experts cite Beijing's history of underreporting health data as a cause. When he finally made it back home this year, he was placed in mandatory quarantine for eight days upon landing in China. He described being forced to take virus tests daily or every other day. He questioned why a healthy man living overseas was being treated like an enemy in his homeland. In another case, a group of 25 people made a joint announcement to quit the Communist Party. They, too, cited authorities' mishandling of the pandemic and the current overflow in China's crematoriums. Different than the Pledge of Allegiance in the United States, the CCP makes citizens take an oath to the Communist Party. The New York-based Global Tuidang Center, also known as the Global Center for Quitting the CCP, is encouraging Chinese to renounce this oath. Most use pseudonyms to quit, to protect their identities or family members in China from retaliation. From a staunch supporter of the Chinese Communist Party to the leader of an overseas anti-CCP group, what caused the dramatic shift? We spoke with Wester Yang, a Chinese student living in Canada, for his story. They must not fall and we must not retreat. We cannot let the butchers appear tall and block the wind of freedom in this land. Among overseas solidarity for China's white paper revolution, Wester Yang's voice was heard loud and clear. The university student formed an anti-CCP group in Toronto called Assembly of Citizens. But Yang said he started out as a so-called little pink. The term is given to young Chinese filled with extreme nationalist pride who defend the party against any and all criticism. Through reading history books, Yang came to realize the true nature of the Chinese communist regime. Both his faith in the party and his worldview faltered. Now he's calling himself a rebel. When I became a little pink, I was acting out of the kind of patriotism from the Chinese Communist Party propaganda. Now that I'm a rebel, my motivation remains the same. I still love China, but now this China doesn't equal the Chinese Communist Party, and my love is purely for this land and its people. He spoke of the sorrow and anger that prompted his change. These feelings arose from witnessing the torture of his countrymen in China and the persecution of their freedom of speech and belief. The Communist Party's sins come out of every pore and every breath, from south to north, where in the whole of China is not a concentration camp. The Cultural Revolution happened, not because Mao himself is a deviant, it's the system. The event was just a flower that grew out of the intertwined poisonous vine that creeps across China. The key is, there's no point in just removing its flowers without chopping off its roots. Last November, Yang joined support for a protester who hung an anti-lockdown banner on a bridge in Beijing. This demonstration was the trigger for the blank paper movement afterwards, a protest movement standing up against Beijing's suppression and strict pandemic lockdown measures. I will look back on what I did in 10, 20 or 30 years before I die. If I can say with a clear conscience that I did everything I could in China's darkest hour, then I won't regret it. Yang said he still chose to step forward and protest despite facing threats and intimidation. And even though, he'll never be able to return to his hometown in China.
And here in the U.S., the FBI is warning about the CCP's repressions on U.S. territory. The agency is placing targeted ads to the Chinese-American community. The FBI ads ask Chinese-Americans to come forward if they have been victimized by the Chinese communist regime while living in the U.S. The ads list in Chinese crimes such as cyberstalking, cyber harassment, physical harassment, assault, extortion, blackmail, and harassment through the Chinese social media app WeChat. The FBI has been running the ads on Facebook since late December. This appears to be part of a larger effort by the FBI to publicize and investigate the Chinese regime's international suppression tactics. And speaking of the CCP's foreign influence, France is fining Chinese-owned social media app TikTok over $5 million. It's for the company's online tracking. A French data protection watchdog fined TikTok $5.4 million on Thursday. They said TikTok had shortcomings in their handling of online tracking known as cookies. The French watchdog found that for TikTok users, it was not as easy to refuse online trackers as it was to accept them. The agency also found that users were not sufficiently informed about TikTok's use of the cookies. The investigation is only concerned with the website TikTok.com and not the more popular smartphone app. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, a video purports to capture Ukrainian troops firing at a Russian Wagner mercenary. Ukraine says it's from one of the regions with the most intense fighting. And Germany responds to Poland sending German-made tanks to Ukraine, saying it hasn't received any official request from Warsaw. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. Battles are still raging in eastern Ukraine. A video allegedly shows Ukrainian troops firing on Russian Wagner mercenaries. Before we show the footage, a warning that some viewers may find it violent. Video shows Ukrainian troops targeting a man with the guidance of drones and GPS. The man, said to be a Wagner mercenary, was seeking shelter as he crawled into a house. He was later found lying in the yard, partially covered in rubble. Captions in the video say the man was unable to move. Ukraine's state border guard service said this fight occurred in the eastern city of Bakhmut, an area which has seen intense fighting in recent months. Russia said this week that it has taken control of the nearby salt mining town of Solidar. But Kyiv said its forces were still holding out after an intense night of fighting. More concerning Russia, the country is commenting on the relationship between its ally Armenia and neighboring Azerbaijan. Tensions have been rising between the two countries. Armenia recently canceled peace talks with its neighbor Azerbaijan about a disputed region. Russia on Thursday blamed its military ally Armenia for the breakdown of the talks, which have been going on for months. The disputed region is a breakaway enclave internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but home to a mainly Armenian population. For the past month, Azerbaijani citizens have blocked transport along the only road linking the region to Armenia. Armenia has called this a government-endorsed blockade. Meanwhile, Azerbaijan denies that the region is under blockade. Russia is now calling on Armenia to come back to the negotiating table. Questions remain on whether to supply Western tanks to Ukraine. Poland seems to be planning to ship German-made battle tanks to its war-torn neighbor. 
many fear that the decision won't be approved by Germany. In response, Berlin says it hasn't received any official requests from Poland or Finland to supply its Leopard battle tanks to Ukraine. A spokesman noted there is no concern that Poland will make the move without German permission because that would be a violation of re-export rules. The U.S., France, and Germany agreed last week to offer light tanks to Ukraine, among other help. Berlin added it wants to deliver around 40 infantry fighting vehicles before the end of March. Tens of thousands of rural households in Scotland face bills upwards of 30,000 pounds, or about $36,000, to meet Prime Minister Nicola Sturgeon's net zero demands. The SNP Green Coalition government is giving people living in rural Scotland three years to upgrade their homes from gas boilers to green alternatives such as electric heat pumps. A member of Scottish Parliament told NTD's Malcolm Hudson people are receiving little financial support but will still be expected to cough up and pay. Residents of rural Scotland are facing steep costs to upgrade their homes to meet net zero demands by the Scottish Government. But to achieve this, trade body Liquid Gas UK estimates rural Scottish homeowners will need to pay up to £32,000. Shadow Net Zero Secretary for the Scottish Conservatives, Liam Kerr, said this will affect tens of thousands of homes. The Scottish Government brought in something called its heat and building strategy. And what is effectively said is that they want all properties in Scotland to meet a certain level of efficiency. So EPCC by 2025 with a, a slightly longer stop date uh, where absolutely necessary. What we've discovered is that, in response to some parliamentary questions I put in, there are about 170,000 off-gas grid properties in Scotland. And 40,000 of those are not even suitable for the government's favoured decarbonisation technologies, air source heat pumps in particular. Off-gas grid homes have until 2025 to install environmentally friendly alternatives while those on the gas grid have until 2030. Kerr said that 55% of houses in Scotland are at an EPC rating of D or below. That's more than a million homes. Old rural houses will need to be completely retrofitted with loft insulation and double glazing. And even town houses still face bills between 10 and 20,000 pounds to install green heat sources. It's estimated it'll cost the whole of Scotland £33 billion to convert buildings by 2045. But Kerr says the Scottish Government is offering very little support. To put it bluntly, they're expecting people to cough up. Uh, So there are some, uh, or there were some interest-free loans that people could take out up to a certain value. And as I said, the Scottish Government is putting £1.8 billion of the £33 billion cost of this Uh, over the next five years towards the decarbonisation. But fundamentally, people are on their own. Peter Harvey, the Scottish Greens minister in charge of the plan, said heating homes and buildings is the third largest cause of emissions in Scotland. But Kerr said the Scottish government should account for the fact that many people simply cannot afford £32,000 bills within three years' time. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. The charity Citizens Advice estimates over 3 million people across Britain ran out of credit on their prepayment energy meter last year. That's because they could not afford to deposit necessary funds. 
That's more than the last 10 years combined. The consumer watchdog for the energy market said more than 2 million people were being disconnected at least once a month. Of those, nearly 20% spent at least 24 hours without gas or electricity, leaving them unable to turn the heating on or cook a hot meal. Some households spent two or more days without energy supply. Citizens' advice was particularly concerned about disabled people and those living with long-term health conditions. Based on figures from the UK's energy regulator, the charity estimated that 600,000 people were forced onto a prepayment meter in 2022. Citizens' advice is now calling for a total ban on forced prepayment meter installations until new protections are introduced. Staying in the UK, a strike by 100,000 civil servants is set to go ahead next month after one union leader called talks with the government a total farce. Cabinet Office Minister Jeremy Quinn met with civil service trade union leaders to discuss growing industrial unrest. After the meeting, the General Secretary of the Public and Commercial Services Union said Quinn didn't offer anything. Unions have made it clear that more money would have to be offered to head off an escalation of work stoppages. A cabinet office spokesperson said discussions will continue. France is bracing for possible rolling power blackouts this winter, and some French households and businesses are taking extra precautions. They're stocking up on camping stoves, lanterns, and electricity generators. Here's the story. The manager of an outdoor store in Paris is replenishing shelves with camping stoves and gas lanterns. This morning, we received a delivery of stoves and gas lanterns, a huge order, around 100 stoves and around 100 gas lanterns. I think we'll make it to next week with this. A cold snap in December prompted the French government warning of possible power cuts this winter. Some are therefore taking extra precautions. We've noticed a new Parisian clientele that is quite concerned and worried that they'll find themselves without electricity. And to reassure themselves, they want to have this kind of item in their homes. The manager said the sales of lanterns and camping stoves increased tenfold last month. This customer is shopping for lamps. I took stock of the mountain camping equipment we have at home. And I found that we were short of lamps in case there is a glitch. Talk of possible power cuts has also prompted the surge in sales of electricity generators. A supermarket in northwest France recently received a generator which it ordered back in August. The manager of the supermarket said the price of 20,000 euros for the generator is worthwhile. So in fact, without the generator, after two hours, all my goods in the fresh produce section, which are worth 30,000 euros, would go to waste. For the frozen section, I have about 15,000 euros worth of goods, and after one hour without the generator, I would have to throw all of it away. The general director of a generator company said stocks had gone down from around 500 generators to 180 by mid-December. Most of the buyers were large retailers, retirement homes, medical clinics and government offices. So at the moment, production has more than doubled. It has almost tripled compared to what we usually produce. Behind you, you'll see that our warehouse is practically empty. There must be about 180 machines left, which have been sold and are waiting to be prepared to go to the customers. While France is usually a net exporter of electricity to European neighbors, it turned into a net importer this year.
Multiple reactors in its nuclear fleet have also been shut down for maintenance and corrosion repairs, prompting warnings over potential electricity shortages. Just ahead, over one million tons of rare earth mineral resources are found in Sweden. It's the largest such deposit in Europe. And we'll take a look at the first 3D-printed two-story home in the U.S. The enormous 3D printer weighs more than 12 tons. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Sweden has found large mineral resources containing rare earth oxides. The amount exceeds one million tons. That's the biggest such find in Europe. Swedish state-owned mining company LKAB announced the news. The discovery was made in the country's far northern city of Karuna. Rare earth minerals are vital to many high-tech manufacturing processes. They're used in electric cars, wind turbines, portable electronics, and microphones and speakers. Sweden's Minister of Energy, Business and Industry said the discovery will help the country balance energy goals with economic growth. Over to South America, millions of dollars worth of copper was stolen from a seaport in Chile. Authorities say they are investigating the violent heist. Chilean authorities said on Wednesday that robbers stole several shipping containers filled with copper in Chile's main seaport on Tuesday morning. Ten armed men allegedly attacked workers at the port and stole 13 containers. Twelve of the containers had copper. They belonged to a state-owned company. Authorities said they are investigating and reviewing security footage but have not detained any suspects. Citing police sources, local media reported the copper plates were worth an estimated $4.4 million. Chile is the world's largest copper producer. Mining companies in Chile have repeatedly complained about copper thefts by specialized gangs. A new airport terminal costing $2.7 billion welcomes its first passengers and flights. The terminal replaces the previous one built 50 years ago in Newark Liberty International Airport. It's necessary because if you've been to the old Terminal A that was finished in 1973, it was totally archaic. It was in the Stone Age, uh, and the people of New York and New Jersey d deserve a first-class and world-class facility like this. This terminal is really about um, the state of New Jersey. Everything from the, the local artists, the iconic uh, artwork, the seatings in the whole room represent different colors, different parts of the state of, of New Jersey. Terminal A features 33 new gates and more than 35 food and retail options. Portraits created by local artists decorate the walls, but the opening of the terminal met with a few hiccups as staff had to familiarize themselves with how the new facilities operate and a power outage caused delays for passengers entering security checkpoints. Once the power was reconnected, a security breach led to more delays. Additional construction to complete the terminal is scheduled to be finished this summer, but the opening was a cause for a celebration. A water cannon salute greeted one of the first flights to land at the terminal. It was a United Airlines plane from West Palm Beach, Florida. In suburban Houston, a new multi-story home is taking shape. It's the first 3D-printed two-story house built in the U.S. Entity's Andrew Thomas reports. At the construction site, an enormous 3D printer weighing more than 12 tons lays down layers of concrete. 
in general, it is a much faster uh, construction uh, process, and it also requires uh, you know only four to five people. Um, crew on site to print a whole house and so you can see that on site we have currently five people. Um, one of the benefits is also it takes a lot of the heavy lifting. The home's layout and design are courtesy of architect Leslie Loke. She's the co-founder of design studio Hannah. In the designing of this house, uh, we not only think about the general floor plans um, and you know usage, but we also design the actual print path, like how the printer will print, where it starts, and where it stops. Loke said the building will feature a hybrid design of concrete and wood framing. While 3D printed homes are becoming more popular in the United States, Loke says printing a second level is a different story. Um, so today we're at the site of the first two-story 3D printed house in the U.S. And as you can see in my back, um, we're actually at the section where we first completed the two-story uh, section in the back of the house. The project is a two-year collaboration by Hannah, Perry 3D Construction, and CIVE. CIVE's head of structural engineering said the project is a case study for future endeavors. Uh, traditional construction, you know the rules, you know the game, you know the material properties, the material behavior. In here, everything is new. The material is new, although concrete is an old material in general, but 3D printing concrete is something new. The building is expected to be completed in the second half of 2023. Loke says her firm plans to use lessons learned from this project to construct more homes. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, inflation means higher prices for those wanting to hit the ski slopes, but skiers still return to Arlberg, a mountainous region in western Austria and one of Europe's top ski areas. And a tennis match between former NBA star Dirk Nowitzki and world number 13 Alexander Zverev. What do the players have to say about the match? We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Inflation means higher prices for those wanting to hit Austria's ski slopes, but for some, skiing on fresh powder isn't something they're willing to compromise on. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Skiers have returned to Arlberg, a mountainous region in western Austria. It's home to one of Europe's top ski areas. We are very happy. The booking situation for this winter 22-23 is very, very good, and guests from all over the world are coming back to us in St. Anton am Arlberg. Austria's largest ski resort, Ski Arlberg, is internationally popular. It's spread over two provinces and five main towns and villages. Well, we have the feeling that the overnight stays are back at the level before COVID, although we will only get the figures in the next few weeks and will then be able to confirm this exactly. Skiing can be an expensive vacation. A day pass at Ski Arlberg costs $70. That's in addition to ski equipment, accommodations and food. Of course, price increases are also noticeable here as in all other areas. I would almost say in the whole world. And regarding the past prices, they have increased by about 9.8% compared to last year. But the price hike hasn't scared off German tourist Mike Schmidt. He's here with friends on his first ski trip. 
in Arlberg. We've been here in Arlberg for four days, skiing, well, snowboarding. It was beautiful. The inflation didn't influence us. It was a lot of fun. Some tourists are from as far as Australia, like Marina Hamilton from Brisbane. She got married during the pandemic and chose Europe as her honeymoon destination. The changes with COVID as well as just the way that the economy has changed completely, um, it has had an impact on our, on our travel and some of the choices we've made. Um, but also because this is a special trip, some things we're not thinking about money for. But <laughs> Economists at the Austrian Institute of Economic Research said last month that high inflation will affect the 2022-2023 ski season but added that they're cautiously optimistic. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Yakutia, eastern Russia, was hit with a bout of extremely cold weather in early January, with temperatures low enough to freeze food solid rapidly. Video posted on social media showed a bowl of rigid noodles suspended from a fork. More cold weather is forecast for the region. According to the weather forecast by Gizmeteo Online Service, the temperature is expected to plunge as low as 85 below in some areas during the weekend. The 2011 NBA champion Dirk Nowitzki is playing on the tennis court as well as the basketball court. He had a match against world number 13 Alexander Zverev in Australia on Thursday. The German basketball star proved to be a competent hitting partner for his countryman Zverev. Zverev said he was impressed with Nowitzki's skills. He noted that it was his first time playing tennis with the basketball star. Zverev said, quote, there's obviously talent. There's no question about that. But Nowitzki said, uh, I wouldn't say it's any good. Grew up playing, but now I can't move anymore. I can't run. But I still love the game, stay close to the game, followed it my whole life. Went to Wimbledon three or four times. And this is my first time that the Aussie Open is a bucket list thing. Nowitzki spent 21 seasons at the Dallas Mavericks. He is now 44 years old. Following the game, Nowitzki said he was cooked and will no doubt enjoy putting his feet up and watching the upcoming Australian Open. The tournament will take place from Monday, January 16th to Sunday, the 29th in Melbourne. Zverev is set to face Peru's Juan Pablo Varillas in the first round of the tournament. Novak Djokovic was given a thunderous reception on his return to the Australian Open's Rod Laver Arena. He competed in a charity match against Australian Nick Kyrgios. The charity match raises funds for the Australian Tennis Foundation ahead of the Australian Open. Djokovic has won the Open nine times but missed last year's tournament after arriving in the country unvaccinated. The Australian government then deported him. After splitting the first two shortened sets, the pair was joined for the deciding tiebreaker, first by wheelchair players David Wagner and Heath Davidson, then by two local youngsters. The match against Kyrgios was a lighthearted affair. Djokovic even entertained the crowd with some dance steps ahead of the real tournament action, which starts on Monday. Kyrgios was seen in the recent Netflix documentary series Breakpoint, where he talks about his struggles with drinking and on-court outbursts. He rose to fame in 2014 after defeating top-ranked player Rafael Nadal. Both men play their opening matches on Tuesday. Healthy fats like those found in olive oil, salmon, avocado, and a selection of nuts and seeds can have immune-strengthening effects. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. 
fat and immune health have an interesting relationship. Sometimes fat can work against immune strength and other times it can bolster it. So let's find out how it can influence our health. The first part of understanding this is to distinguish between body fat and dietary fat. High levels of body fat can cause inflammation. It can also tax the immune system and make you more susceptible to illness. Dietary fat is a completely different thing. Depending on what type you eat, you could be helping or working against your immune strength. Unhealthy fats include trans fats or high levels of saturated fats. These can cause inflammation and weaken your immune system. The most dangerous sources of these fats are those found in processed foods. Examples include microwave popcorn, potato chips, lunch meats, or other processed meats. On the other hand, healthy fats include olive oil and avocado oil, salmon, avocado, and a selection of nuts and seeds. They assist your body's immune response by lowering inflammation. Olive oil is a rich source of monounsaturated fats. These are associated with a host of health benefits. It is highly anti-inflammatory and is linked with a decreased risk of chronic health conditions. I'm referring to heart disease and type 2 diabetes. These effects can help in the long term and the short term. People with existing inflammatory health conditions are at a higher risk for cold, flu and COVID-19. Their bodies are not prepared to fight off illness and infection. This could lead to severe outcomes. A stronger immune system might help you to avoid illness in the first place. It also makes your body more efficient at relieving illness. In the long term, it can help your immune system stay stronger and more functional. A number of factors play into immune strength. Diet is a major one. Focus on boosting healthy fat intake and limiting unhealthy dietary fats. Fat intake is just one part of a dietary approach to stronger immunity. A mishap at a shop in Brazil was caught on video and now it's gone viral on social media. The video shows a man closing up the shop. He places a big heavy lock bar under the door and then turns away. The lock bar falls without notice right on an older man's foot who's actually the shopkeeper's father-in-law. After checking to make sure his father-in-law is okay, the man tries again to put up the lock bar. And again, he walks away, only for the lock bar to fall again. This time, it hits the poor guy right across his head. Fortunately, the older man is said to be doing just fine. He only had a few bruises from the injuries. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.